Well, what I want to do is pick up on the series that uh, Jesse uh, started uh, with us last week on Who Am I in God? Who, if, I mean, it's a bit hard to ask you to put up your hands. So let me say this in a different way. That was a fantastic message last week. Amen. So I trust you were all really touched uh, by it, that it really got into your heart. If you didn't hear Jesse's message last week, let me encourage you to get it on the web or whatever way you're able to and listen to it. And it just frames up this series so well. So I want to pick up on that and hopefully try and maintain the same standard and uh, uh, talk about uh, who we are in God. And my title this morning is just simply, We Are Sons. And uh, I do want to go back to the place basically where uh, Jesse left off in Exodus. But the point is to say this, if we're looking for our identity in life, unless we we have at least some understanding of who God is and what he is doing, and then who we are in him, we can't find our identity because it is tied in to all of those things. And I want to try and unpack at least, I mean, it's another whole series in itself. And I want to unpack at least a little bit of that this morning. And then I'll follow it on next week to get some idea of it. So if we go uh, back to Exodus 4, um, chapter 4, verse 22. So as Jesse shared with us last week, Moses has been through what he did at first in his own strength, then in the strength of God. So Moses is now sent back to Egypt with the whole purpose that God is going to release his people. He's calling his people out after 400 years of, of captivity. And so uh, verse 22 says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. There's the opening statement, and this is so important as God gives birth to a nation that we understand who he is saying Israel is. Israel is my son, my firstborn. So God is not just saying this nation, these people, are my people. He's not just saying they are his favoured ones. He's not just uh, saying that they're going to be his blessed ones, although they are all those things and they become all those things. But God is opening this up with a concept of sonship. He's saying, I want to relate to a nation, and then that comes back to us as individuals and, and the church, which we'll cover. He is saying, I want to relate to a people as my son. I want to father them. And this is how this is going to work. So at this point, a whole new order of God's relationship with his people begins. And out of all the nations of the world, God, by his sovereign choice, has called the nation of Israel out to be his son. Now, I've got to make sure I don't get distracted here. And also, I don't want to tread on anybody's toes. But the people of Israel were chosen by God to express this concept of sonship to the world. They completely missed that part of their calling. Completely missed it. And if you do the study and follow through Exodus, you'll see the scriptures where God says, I want to reveal. So God always wanted the whole world 
to be worshipping him and serving him. And, and, and he wanted the whole world to know who he was as father. And so this is the beginning of how God had planned to express himself through this nation out into all the peoples of the world. So he comes up, and we're still, we're going to stay in uh, chapter 4, but he comes up in the first part of verse 23, and he's speaking to Pharaoh, and he says, I say to you, let my son go. Now, we need to understand, this is a blatant statement. God's not doing a plea bargain. God's not negotiating. God's not giving an alternative of choices. He's not saying to Pharaoh, let's sit down and work this out. I'd kind of like these people to be my people. What can we do? God just comes to Pharaoh, confronts him through Moses and Aaron, and says, let my son go. Now, son applies, obviously, to the whole nation, male, female, and we'll stay in that context. See, God's not a nice guy. He's not. He's not fear in the way we call and understand fairness. He's not reasonable in the way that we understand or would like to call him to reason. He's God. And he's going to be God. And he's going to express himself. And sure, he wants us to understand his will and his ways. But if, he do, if we don't, he's going to do them anyway. In Proverbs, it says God delights to keep some things hidden from his people. We'll never know all the mysteries of God. In fact, the scriptures say that eternity, I love this, eternity is not long enough to get to know everything about God. So in 10 billion years' time, do you know that you and I are still going to be learning new things about God? Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that amazing? It's actually hard to believe. We are not going to get bored learning about God, brothers and sisters, because it's never going to stop. And we'll say, wow, I hadn't seen that before in the last five billion years. That's amazing. Here it is. So God's not a nice guy. He's not working a deal. He's not negotiating. So he makes an emphatic and very aggressive demand to Pharaoh. And... At that point, and he does this to you and I still today, in a slightly different way under the new covenant, but at that point, there is either submission or consequences. Frequently, when God calls us through the Holy Spirit coming to us, frequently there's either submission or consequences. And many of us could give our life story and journey about some of those examples. So what he has said, carry on, we're still in verse 23. And this seems horrible and ugly till we see how it's all worked. He says that if you don't do this, I will kill your firstborn son. And sons make it plural. See, if we start messing around with God's son, God's children, God's people, if we exploit them or mistreat them or think we have power over them, we will eventually find ourselves confronted by the living God. 
So God says to Pharaoh, if you don't let my son out, I will kill your firstborn son. It will happen suddenly and there will be no, no way back. Now here's a point before we think this is getting too ugly. Pharaoh started the killing game. He said to the midwives, these Hebrew people are becoming too numerous. There's too many of them. So he said, I want you to start killing all the firstborn sons that are born. So Pharaoh started this game. Moses' very life was escaped. He escaped from a death sentence and got put in the basket. And we know the rest of that story or you can read it. So it was Pharaoh who gave an edict to the people and the midwives to kill the firstborn son of all the um, Israel, all the Hebrew people. So he started this game. He set the terms of operation for how this thing was going to pan out. So now we see that because God said, because you started this killing game, killing the firstborn sons, I am going to give you some warnings of who I am. That's fear. So he does all the miracles in front of him. I'm going to show you the power I operate in. Then I'm going to make the demand again. And if you don't respond then, we will play the game by your rules. And we know the rest of that story and we'll see it. Pharaoh becomes arrogant and so a showdown begins. Now we need to understand that Egypt was the world's first superpower. It was a mighty, powerful nation. And at the time of Exodus 4, and all this is taking place, Egypt was not at battle, not at war, because nobody, no country, no nation, no tribe, no army would challenge Egypt. So the world, as it was known at that point, lived in fear of Egypt, and the most powerful person on the planet was the Pharaoh of Egypt. So God comes along to this superpower and he mounts a direct challenge against their power and authority on the basis of them holding his son in captivity and exploiting them. So now we're going to have a demonstration of power and to see who's in control. Who really rules the world, but also what sonship means to God. So he goes on with the challenge. He says, I want you to send him out so he may worship or serve me. See, here is a further challenge. And the point I want to make is that God is mounting this challenge to every single superpower that rises up against him throughout all of history, including right up till today. And often we watch the news and we see these superpowers and we see things that are going on. But in Daniel chapter 4, it says that any kingdom that raises itself up against the kingdom of God will be crushed. 
And often we consign that just to the future. Or often we consign that to the point where Jesus is going to return. And if you look through history, and let's use communism as a a modern day example, if anything raises itself up, which communism did, and claims to be a kingdom, at that point it is doomed. Now it may take time. It may take prayer. It may have a whole big history of martyrdom where many Christian saints have died as a result of their faith in God and refusing to bow down to such so-called kingdoms. But eventually, every kingdom that raises itself up and claims itself to be a kingdom and power on this earth will be and is confronted by God and at that point its end is already in place. It just needs to unfold. It's a whole message in itself and I want to keep some at least down to the uh, personal side of it. But throughout history... God is always moving to intervene in human affairs. And we have thousands of years of history to reveal that. So he comes to the current day superpower, which is Egypt, led by Pharaoh. And he says, nobody is going to decide the destiny of my people but me. So if you've read the book of Revelation, you need to know as God's people, he is deciding our history. He is deciding where we go today, tomorrow, and the next day. He is demanding to be God, and I'm talking about today, not in the second coming, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. We can go through them all. God is claiming he rules and reigns on this earth, and he is going to take his people where he intends his people to go, and he is going to make history shape up in accordance with his word, and he is going to finish it his way. And we live in that security and that promise every day of our life. Psalm 33, 22 says, For the Lord is our judge, for the Lord is our lawgiver, for the Lord is our king, he will save us. Amazing. So God comes and confronts the power which is Pharaoh and Egypt. And he says this, Do not mess with my son. Let him go. I'll give you some evidence of who I am, but then if you haven't responded, you will have an encounter with me that you will regret. See, when a divine proclamation comes from God, his words go out with purpose and with power and always achieve what he intended them to achieve. The scriptures tell us that his word never returns to him void. So when God spoke to Pharaoh and said, I'm bringing my son out of Egypt, there is no force on earth that can stop that happening. You can call yourself the superpower. You can claim you rule this earth. But if I want my son out, he is coming out and you'll need to get out of my way. See, this is our God. This is our Father. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, I want him out to worship me, and I want him out to serve me. And it's God's desire, like for many fathers, 
that the firstborn son will work with him and will eventually accept responsibility for his house and for his fields here in this day and age for this planet and the people on it. And if necessary, take care of his aging parents and dependent children and all of those other things. And see, we've just described the kingdom of God right there. There it is, right there. God forms our identity by picking us up, taking us with him out across the family farm and showing us the way he wants this all managed. That's how we form our identity in God. He calls us out, which is wonderful, as a loving father, but then he puts us to work. And it is as we work with God in all walks of life that we learn who he is. That's how he teaches us of his ways. This is time-honored, guys. This has been going on forever, right up to at least the last couple of hundred years in human history. See, it's through Israel and now through us that God intends to bless and impact the world. That's his choice. And this is and will be our call forever. And it creates our identity as sons and daughters. So here is a point. Who we serve controls and shapes our life. Remember Bob Dylan sung that song years ago, you have to serve somebody. He said, it may be God, it may be the devil, but you have to serve somebody. Everybody serves somebody. Everybody is as yoked with somebody or something. It may be God. It may be entertainment and materialism. It may be a bottle of alcohol. But everybody, it may be work. But everybody serves a master. And Jesus made it clear in Matthew 6, 24, that we cannot serve two masters. And if we've truly given our lives to God, we are in his service. And there are expectations from God that come with that. We need to hear this. And Leviticus 25, 55, it says, For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So here we have a paradox. The son is also a servant. As sons and daughters of the living God, that's our first primary calling, that's our primary place of relationship with the Father. But as sons and daughters of the living God, we are called to serve. George Matheson Capture this well in a wonderful hymn. I just want to read the words of it. It says, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. It almost sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms. When by myself I stand, Moses we saw last week, found that. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. See, in all of this, it's a trade-up. I bring my strength and, and trade it into, for God's strength by surrender. I bring my ways and my independence and my stubbornness and trade up for God leading and empowering me by the Holy Spirit. 
So Israel comes into this knowledge of God as a young fledgling who needs to develop and mature. So Exodus is a story of birth and infancy, but Israel can't stay there. And God won't let them there. He let them stay there. He needs the nation to grow up. He needs them to mature. See, our relationship with God must never become static because there's always new things to learn, new things to be empowered by, new things to embrace. And God wants to take us from one degree of glory to another. And so we're going through this process, in my opinion, for eternity. That's the way it is. And it should excite us. I've said this here many times before, but when a two-year-old throws their dinner on the floor... We can laugh a little bit as grandparents. Actually, I really crack up. I think it's hilarious. But parents tend to have a little bit of a different view of it. But it's okay. That's what two-year-olds do. But I don't see anybody laugh when a 12-year-old throws their dinner on the floor. It's not funny anymore. It reveals quite a major problem in the, in the house or the family. So God thinks we're cute when we're born again. He loves us. They often say it's the best time to pray. God will give you just about anything you ask for. But then he wants us to grow up and mature and accept responsibility for this wonderful world that he's put us in and begin to bring and make change. And we can't do that out of infancy. We can do some things, but it's as we grow and it's as we mature, we really start to bring fruit for him, which changes this planet and it changes this life and brings it into a place of conformity, Romans chapter 8, brings it into a place of conformity with the will and the ways of God, then his blessing flows. See, I watch far too much Christian television. I really do. And I get tired of the preaching that's constantly teaching us and training us into how to get from God what we want and we need, which we can use any way we like just for our own pleasure or our own entertainment. That is not what the kingdom of God is about. See, God's saying, I want you to come and work with me. Sure, I want to love on you, and I want you to worship and praise me, and we want to do this thing together, but I want to bring change. I look upon this world, and I cry out for the way it could be. Where are my people that are going to put their hand up and say, I don't want to live a selfish life, Lord. I want to be empowered by you to change my home, to change my family, to change my place of work and to change this nation in whatever way that you've called me into. That's who God's looking for. That's why we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. See, I know that we have to differentiate between who we are and what we do in the kingdom of God. I understand why. I've preached on it here. But if we are not careful We can violate the warning in James, which says that if faith has no works, it's dead. If God is who he says he is, we can change at least the degree of world that we inhabit. Every one of us here can.
We're called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. So God promises he'll call his people out of slavery. And he does. They are spectacularly rescued from oppression and slavery. But this is only the beginning. So then he says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. It's Deuteronomy 4.20. See, we need to know what his inheritance is, and part of it is planet Earth. Romans 8 says this planet cries out for the sons of God to rise up and begin to release it from its bondage. I'll share a little bit more about that next week. I just want to pick up one more point here and I'm finished. It is very important that we understand that God did not call the people out as individuals. He began with a nation. The basic foundation of the new covenant is that as individuals we can call God Father, but Israel was never, the nation was never given that privilege. As a nation, they could claim to be sons and daughters, but when Jesus claimed it as an individual, the Jews found it blasphemous and wanted to stone him. And in Matthew 6, when, when the disciples said to Jesus, how do we pray? And he said, so you start with this, our Father, that was never heard of in history and it was abhorrent to the people that we would dare go to the one holy God and address him as father and there is a great privilege on the foundation of the whole new covenant right there but we need to come back and realize God called them out as a community of people he told them they were a holy nation called to serve his purposes And this calling is eternal. It is a foundational principle of the kingdom of God and the new covenant. So here's what I'm saying to you. We're winding all the way back to to identity as I close off. I want to say this. True identity cannot be discovered outside of community. I want to repeat it. True identity cannot be discovered outside of community. And I know it's very fashionable for many people today not to go to church, and I read the books and hear all the arguments about, hey, when two or three of us are gathered in a coffee bar at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, having a coffee or a glass of wine or whatever, there is Jesus in the midst and there is the church meeting. It's absolute rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. Because I ask the question, oh, great, So we can come there and we can do funerals and weddings and baptisms and have communion and we can do, oh, well, no, we don't do all those things. We can go through the list, but that's not even my point this morning. My point is if we want to find our identity as sons and daughters of the living God, we cannot do it outside of community because God designed it to happen this way and he didn't give a plan B. It's not there. So when Ephesians 3 turns around and says that this world is going to receive a testimony 
the manifold witness of God, and it's going to be expressed to the whole heavenly realm in this world through God's people. Do you think we can do that in a coffee bar as two or three gather together and meet and say we all love Jesus? I'm telling you, we can't and we won't. It won't happen. So eventually, however it happens, the people, and I know those people are sincere and love Jesus, and by the way, I love going to a coffee bar, and I still meet with a number of them in the coffee bar. I understand all those things. But we need to understand what we're about, brothers and sisters, and seeing we're talking about identity today, let's focus on that. We cannot find our identity fully unless we are part of a biblical community. Full stop, no plan B. Cry, laugh, worship God for it, or tell him off about it. It's the way it is, and he ain't going to change it. 1 Peter 2.9 But you, you me. You are a chosen race. There's no individualism in here, brothers and sisters. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not one individual can claim that scripture for themselves alone. It's speaking to a community of people. And it is saying through the community of people, the, ex- the excellence of Christ will be expressed into the kingdom of darkness. It will be an expression of his marvellous life. See, it's here that we bring our story and our life into a community of people and that's taken up into the great story or history of God. And I know the Bible was finished from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and nobody's allowed to add anything to it. But you need to understand what is not finished yet is the whole history because God is writing your story and the play, the part you play in his history into this big book, not the Bible, but into the book of history. God is writing that in and it is not completed until all the people God has called as a biblical community has contributed their part to that story and then the end comes now if you feel that I have run over a whole lot of scriptures you feel free to come and see me later but I am saying to you just as in Luke chapter 4 Jesus opened up the Bible and said I'll find my part in it here it is we find our part in the story as a community individuals yes but it must come up into a community and that is the story of life that we're called to be a part of and the whole of creation longs for us to rise up and be that. See, we hit a crisis of identity, and it's all over the body of Christ. We hit a crisis of identity. If everything that we have based our life on is only producing something for our own benefit. Because as Jesse illustrated last week, we saw what Moses was able to do on his own. But with the power of God, he takes a whole nation out of bondage and captivity. Our identity is first found in Christ. That's why it says we've got to be born again. 
but it is worked out primarily in the biblical community that God places us in. So, let me finish in summary. We cannot find our identity outside of Christ. We can live and breathe and even do great things. Plenty of people have. But we cannot find our identity outside of Christ. We cannot become a true person unless we are born again and have placed our lives in Christ. But God designed this life with two key elements to make somebody a true person. And it's these two elements that hold the key to our identity. The first today under the new covenant is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and in that becoming a son. It's generic, male and female. The second is being part of a community that has embraced the burden of the kingdom of God and wants to go out and make a difference to this world and bring true fruit to Jesus as we're required to do. And out of that, as we work with the Father to grow to maturity and as we prove faithful in what he's given us already, he can take us up to the next level. I'll talk about this again next week. May God bless us as we pursue this. Father, we want to thank you that we do have the right to call you Father. And you look down upon us as your sons and your daughters with great delight. Father, I pray every day some of this washes over us and lifts our heart to worship and to joy and to an expression of love for you. But Lord, I pray also that there's a cry in all of our hearts saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And Father, out of that I pray we're not looking to express our individualism, but we're looking to be part of a biblical community through which you can express your life and your love, and we can change the things, Lord, that most people can only complain about. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.